Um, so welcome again to 11th Hour. Uh, a reminder to please turn off or silence cell phones if you have them. And also, as, as I've done in the past, if there's questions at the end, I'll run around with the mic so we can capture them and everyone can hear. Imagine a novelist with a poet's gift for lyricism or a poet with a memoirist's command of voice. Such cross-genre versatility would certainly benefit the work tremendously. Perhaps working across genres is akin to speaking multiple languages fluently, with the ability to transition seamlessly from one to the next. It allows for a degree of precision that one language simply cannot achieve. Today, Elizabeth Robinson will discuss hybrid writing. Elizabeth has taught at the Iowa Writers Workshop, the University of Montana, and the University of Colorado Boulder. She is author of more than a dozen books of poetry and has been a winner of the National Poetry Series and the Fence Modern Poets Prize, as well as a grant from the Foundation for Contemporary Arts. Her most recent books are Blue Heron and Counterpart, and her mixed genre meditation on Ghost was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Award. Please join me in welcoming Elizabeth Robinson. I'm sorry for the relative lack of oxygen in here. But. Um, so what I'm going to do is proceed in a kind of a, an opinionated way and hope that that's enjoyable. And uh, then afterwards, you can challenge me on anything that you think I've gotten incorrect. <coughs> My experience with 11th hours that people are willing to make those kinds of challenges. Um, I also, because I'm talking about mixed genre books, I brought some, but not all of the ones that I'm going to um, discuss briefly with you because I've been moving in the last couple months. So um, if you need me to repeat titles and authors and publishers later, I'd be glad to do that. I, I want to start off by thinking about cliché and what a cliché is. And I'm going to argue that it's an artwork or a, I'll just say artwork for convenience sake that articulates expect expectations and then perfectly fulfills them. Dear reader, the cliché assures us, this is how it works. Please sink comfortably into literature as pre-processed, as habituated activity. In art of any kind that's clichéd, all the trajectories are overdetermined, so there's no truly suspended, anticipatory, or unresolved moment. The reader's choices are removed because the reader has been told what to feel and how to respond. And this is literature as comfort food. All the crunch has been removed. It has the consistency of Velveeta. We all like Velveeta once in a while. <laughs> I watch some bad TV. My contention, however, is that the literature and writing that we love the most and that which compels us whether it be canonized as ca classic or arrive in an email from a friend, engages us in ways that are completely linked to our, or inextricably linked, to our inability as readers to control or predict the movement of the writing. Good writing embraces a certain element of surprise, if not discomfiture. It is insubordinate. That's because good writing works intimately with a variety of tensions. Attention is kind of where it's at for me as a writer. So I think here of Ezra Pound's dictum that points define a periphery. So to kind of embody that, 
Think of a random collection of stars. It becomes an image in the sky. Some call it the Big Dipper. Others call it the Starry Plow or the Wagon. The pattern suggests itself, but then again, it suggests other patterns. It's not entirely stable. That lack of stability, I want to suggest, gives rise to tension. But tension, as well as being destabilizing, can be a source of pleasure, possibility, nuance, texture, and of renewing meaning. In other words, instability can be a form of creativity. So I'm going to locate myself as a poet and share my poet's grievance. Most of the world reads prose, and by prose I mean fiction, and by fiction I mean narrative. So I'm an avid reader of novels and short stories and also nonfiction, and all the craft that can be brought to bear in good writing is obviously alive in all of those genres. But still, we tend to understand narrative and good narrative writing as basically linear. So I'm going to give an example and cite a comment my son made to me when he was three years old. Full of excitement, he ran up to me and said, Mama, I made up a story. You want to hear it? And I said, of course. Then he recited metrically, once upon a time, there was the end. <laughs> so time, you see, and apparently you see it, and here it's rhythms clearly by the time you are three years old, moves in one direction and always resolves with a clear conclusion. There are poets who have subordinated themselves to this pattern as well, and I find it not very exciting in a lot of poetry. For the great gift of poetry is to help us to stay in touch with the fact that narrative itself is a pattern, and it is just one pattern among many infinitely proliferating possibilities of pattern. Points define a periphery. And suddenly, the Big Dipper is neither dipper, nor plow, nor wagon. It's a plummeting kite. It is a pattern. And patterns have the ability to shift and reinvigorate themselves. Even narrative as a pattern can operate in wily, dissonant, and unpredictable ways if we just give it permission to do so. I remember reading Mrs. Dalloway for the first time and going, I didn't know a novel could do this. So. There's many wonderful novels, many wonderful narratives that work in these kind of creative ways. So I'm not proposing that we should discard all narrative. I'm not even suggesting that everyone here become a poet, though it's not a bad idea. I am suggesting that if writing is like origami, then adding a few creases, a twist, and an inversion, we might find a paper cup turning into a sailboat and a swan becoming a giraffe, or back again. Our conventions have the laudable ability to add structure and grace to our writing, but sometimes the freshest writing will bring contradictory conventions into productive collision. So I invite you to think about the informing resources and tensions that arise when a translation is not a translation, but part of an epistolary exchange that I will talk about with Jack Spicer's work when a memoir pauses to become a poem, as in Michael Andache's work, when a historical research runs parallel with poetic confession, when language intersects with image, or when a questionnaire 
ceases to be interrogative and becomes fanciful. Hybrid writing is cropping up all around us, and I hope after I finish talking, we can throw together a kind of bibliography that will provide an immediate resource that we can share. Even if the term seems foreign to you, I suspect that you will realize you have already been a reader of hybrid forms. So I'm going to pause to set out a definition of hybrid writing. This is from Kristen Galster in the Rutledge Encyclopedia of Narrative Theory. She says, hybrid novels combine, transform, and subvert the conventions of several narrative subgenres, break down the boundaries between fiction, poetry, and drama, import non-literary discourses and text types, and employ narrative strategies that strive to imitate the organizing principles of painting, music, and film. This definition continues to assume the supremacy of the novel, but it clarifies a few things. Hybridity welcomes pastiche, collage, and even palimpsest. Hybridity imports materials and strategies from multiple genres and sometimes multiple media. Claudia Rankine's poetry volumes, Don't Let Me Be Lonely and Citizen, both use images, and sometimes high art images, and sometimes photographs of images that she just photographed from her own television screen. So in that way, hybrid writing is frequently unabashed about moving between high and low art forms. Hybrid writing may use typography and the field of the page in unexpected ways. I'm going to just try to... Not that you can really see this, but um, I was talking about this book with my class this weekend. Trong Tran's poetry book, which is largely a memoir, uses the page this way. And you can come up and look at it later, but it's really just one line of text running across a page, page after page, with some breaks. Um, and I l always like to tell the story that he was invited by a um, periodical that was doing a, a section on Asian-American writers to submit some work. And he, they said, send 20 pages. So he sent 20 pages of this. And they objected and rejected what he sent. Um, so I would call this a hybrid text. And as you would expect, I find Galster's definition flawed in that she says that hybridity, hybridity is concerned with subverting the conventions of several narrative subgenres and employs narrative strategies that strive to imitate the organizing principles of painting, music, and film. Once again, she's putting the primacy on narrative, but I would argue that our finest hybrid writers, and the ranks are growing all the time, are keenly attuned to the possibilities alive in multiple genres. They are multi-genre craftspeople who are bringing various genre strategies and conventions into play together in ways that test and temper, say, the lyricism of prose or the dialogic qualities of poetry. They are not imitating painting, music, and film. In many ways, they are integrating and recreating these media textually. What I do like about Galster's definition is that she says hybrid writing has the ability to transform. So this might seem a little far-fetched, but let's use water as an analog for writing. When certain pressures, we are in the chemistry building after all. Um, when certain pressures or tensions are brought to bear on water, it responds. Extreme cold makes it freeze. A liquid suddenly transforms into a solid. And we know that ice has properties and utility that water does not. For instance, ice can be a preservative, preventing food from spoiling. 
but extreme heat turns water to steam. What was once liquid is now a gas, and the tension and energy that ensues could become so potent as to power a locomotive. Amid these transformations, we may miss the stability of writing in which a poem is just a poem, an essay is just an essay, and a story is just a story. But out of the tug and pull of these varying entities coming together, it's no longer a matter even of points defining a periphery. The emergent constellations are so dynamic and startling, simultaneously solid, liquid, and gas. So now I'm going to turn to some books to give you some examples um, that I found exciting. And I think of them as exemplars that help redefine possibilities within and between genres. Um, and different writers, and I think this is the great thing about the mutability and suppleness of this process, use hybrid writing to different effect. Um, but in each case, what I think that writing can do is move the reader out of a state of assumption into a state of tension. And that tension can be very mild, but very engaging, or it can be kind of disruptive. Maybe the first hybrid text that I ever read, though I didn't know that name or apply that label to it at the time, was the poet Jack Spicer's sort of chapbook length um, book called After Lorca. He did this in 1957. As if to show that truly anything is possible in the universe of literature, Spicer managed to combine poetry, poetics, translation, a short screenplay featuring Buster Keaton, and epistolary fiction. In the introduction, the dead Federico Garcia Lorca informs the reader, frankly, I was quite surprised when Mr. Spicer asked me to write an introduction to this volume. My reaction to the manuscript he sent me and to the series of letters that are now part of it was and is fundamentally unsympathetic. However, I have been removed from all contact with poetry for the last 20 years, following his death. It must be made clear at the start that these poems are not translations. In even the most literal of them, Mr. Spicer seems to derive pleasure in inserting or substituting one or two words which completely change the mood and often the meaning of the poem as I had written it. More often, he takes one of my poems and adjoins to half another half of his own, giving rather the effect of an unwilling centaur. Modesty forbids me to speculate which end of the animal is mine. <laughs> Finally, there are an almost equal number of poems that I did not write at all. One supposes they must be his, executed in a somewhat fanciful imitation of my early style. The reader is given no indication which of the poems belong in which category, and I have further complicated the problem by sending Mr. Spicer several poems written after my death, which he has also translated and included here. The word that seems most appropriate to Spicer's endeavor is glee. Though in fact the writing is well-crafted and his ruminations on the nature of writing are deeply considered, there's a completely unfettered quality to Spicer's experiments that we would all do well to absorb. At the beginning of one letter to Lorca, Spicer blithely admits, when I translate one of your poems and I come to words I do not understand, I always guess at their meanings, meanings I am inevitably right. <laughs> to my knowledge, no one else in 1957 was as freely mixing and matching genres as Spicer does here. And one of his messages seems, indeed, that good writing transgresses. 
It transgresses against formal boundaries, against our reverence for our literary forebears, and against consistency itself. Spicer helps to see that the imagine isn't really just about flow. It may instead have the texture of sandpaper. It can move against the grain. And from that very irreverence and dislocation, we enter into writing that's immensely enjoyable, even as it interprets literature anew for us. For Spicer, this project held as much urgency as playfulness. The poem, he insisted, is a collage of the real. We will never attain the real, but we can always find ways piecemeal to postulate and participate in reality. Not long after I read Jack Spicer, I was lucky to come upon the books of Michael Andace, who is probably more familiar to more of you. I recommend as hybrid the collected works of Billy the Kid and Coming Through Slider, Slaughter. But what I'll highlight here is Running in the Family. And I have a copy up here if you want to take a look later. Running in the Family is a memoir, but it's kind of a sideways memoir, more a psychogeography and a family history, a book of lore and exaggeration than a straight-ahead life story. For example, the book begins with a few italic paragraphs related in third person about a man in an indeterminate time and in an indeterminate place. For 25 years, he has not lived in this place. What place? We don't know. The second chapter moves to the first person but defines the quest of the book as arising from dream and drunkenness. One immediately sees that the book will proceed by slight startles, gentle displacements, and embrace of absurdity. Andace tends to speak as an observer at a bit of a remove, not really the agent in the action of the story, which often precedes his birth. We learn little about him except through the wit and tenderness with which he conveys his family story. The history of Ceylon or Sri Lanka, the country to which he has returned as an adult, is revealed as continuous with the story of his family. Family squabbles and alliances merge with truly ancient history and contemporary political turmoil. And that way, we as readers are willing to accept the leap that occurs on page 37. Andace has just been telling the story of his parents' courtship, and we turn the page to a short chapter called Honeymoon, which I will repeat here in its entirety. The Nuwara Ilia tennis championships, championships had ended, and there were monsoons in Colombo. The headlines in the local paper said, Lind Lindbergh's baby found a corpse. Fred Astaire's sister, Adele, got married, and the 13th president of the French Republic was shot to death by a Russian. The lepers of Colombo went on a hunger strike, a bottle of beer cost one rupee, and there were upsetting rumors that ladies were going to play at Wimbledon in shorts. In America, women were still trying to steal the body of Valentino from his grave, and a woman from Canvas, Kansas dis divorced her husband because he would not let her live near the Valentino mausoleum. The famous impresario, C.B. Cochran claimed the ideal modern girl, the Venus of today, should be neither thin nor plump, but should have the lines of a greyhound. It was rumored that pythons were decreasing in Africa. Charlie Chaplin was in Ceylon. He avoided all publicity and was only to be seen photographing and studying candy and dancing. The films at the local cinemas in Colombo were Lovebirds, Caught Cheating, and Forbidden Love. There was fighting in Manchuria. That's the chapter called honeymoon. Some chapters later, Andace visits a site of ancient erotic graffiti written for women painted on frescoes of a rock fortress. This he compares poignantly to the poems and drawings that students scrawled on university walls during a 1971 episode of protest and political repression. 
Both are effaced histories, painted over, eroded, whose authors are now anonymous. The painful history of murder and torture doesn't resolve in a typi typical narrative climax, but it instead flows through a series of poems that follow. The contradictions of time and place merge as hundreds of small verses by different hands became one habit of the unrequited. What running in the family does is to invite the reader to see how many hands, how necessarily many voices and traces come to create a lyric presence, rather than a story that has recognizable beginnings and endings. In that way, Andace makes the subtle tensions of memoir bloom, unrequited. In one of my favorite passages in the book, Andace has visited a church in Colombo with his children and sister, seeking evidence of his ancestors. As daylight wanes, he finds a faded inscription with the family name on the church floor. It has been worn down by centuries of passing feet. His response to this discovery epitomizes the peculiar, gorgeous harmonies and dissonances of his hybrid memoir. The experience, he says, in some strange way, removes vanity, eliminates the personal. It makes your own story a lyric. I'm going to turn to another book now called Dictée, by the 19, and it was published in 1982 by artist and writer Teresa Hakyong Cha. It has something of a cult status. It was published in the same year as Running in the Family, but it is a more overtly collaged text, incorporating, as Andace does, family photos, but also maps, diagrams, messy facsimiles of Cha's handwritten drafts, Catholic catechisms, chapter headings, that named the Greek muses, movie stills, a 1905 petition from the Koreans of Hawaii to President Roosevelt, and Cha's own urgent texts. When I first read this book, I felt enormous excitement. I didn't know that this was possible, but other readers find the seams of the collage here jarring. Where Andache woos the reader with his mellifluousness, Cha leaves her edges ragged, but there's a reason for that. She's talking about a very painful, fragmented history. As the book is, um, as the title suggests, the book's concerned in important ways with the act of dictation, of taking dictation, and Cha is both an obedient student and a very disobedient one. The first full page of the text offers a dictation exercise presented first in French and then in English. Open paragraph. It was the first day, period. She had come from afar, period. Tonight at dinner, comma, the family would ask, comma, open question marks. How was the first day? Interrogation mark, close question marks. Setting it up on the pages way with its choppy line breaks and scripted punctuation, Cha is highlighting the absurdity of rote repetition. Her subsequent use of historical documents, news photos, maps of Korea marking the invasion of China, accrete through the movement of the book, helping the reader to comprehend that the rote dictation of the writing exercise or of a catechism are far less obedient or docile than they might have seemed to be. Korea manifests as a profoundly besieged and colonized site, and Cha becomes a human caught within that broken and reconfigured process. She's both placed and placeless. Her use of the Greek muses as chapter headings, as tutelary spirits that guide the text, seems at first really strange and out of place, a sort of romantic gesture that seems at odds with the sharper energies of the book. But this is also a pivot that informs the tensions of the book. Are there muses that inspire us? 
Is there a universal culture that endows us all with art and humanity? Maybe, Shaw seems to be saying, and then an ironic edge turns to cut us, questioning the culturally invasive nature of the very resource that she's using. The chapter called Melpomene, Tragedy, after the muse of tragedy, begins with Cha writing a letter to her mother. She reflects on exile, on speaking to her mother in another, a foreign tongue. She is estranged from her own language through war and exile, disconnected from her own speech. The chapter ends with an address to the muse, Malpamini, but she becomes an alter ego to Cha herself. Suffice, Malpamini, like ice, metal, glass, mirror, receives none, admits none. Where Andace gives historical cues and so guides the reader, Cha doesn't do that. Her fragmentation is intrinsic to the power of the book. Picking one's way through the shards of history and experience, of one colonial invading wave after another, the reader has to put together their own understanding. Between these historical texts and images, Cha's passionate stream of consciousness runs like lava under a broken landscape. It might melt elements together, but it is also volatile enough to ignite the whole environment. Bewilderment is a necessary part of the experience, and it develops its own lyricism. But it is not the lyricism of wit or reassurance. One thinks here a Fanny Howe statement that all intention reverts to attention. The gaps and leaps end up riveting us to the text, feeling the pain of exile and imposed identity. The next book I'd like to discuss, this is really the last book I want to discuss, is Banu Kapil's first book called The Vertical Interrogation of Strangers. It was published in 2001. It occurs to me, and it interests me, that um, this book is important in ways like Teresa Cha's and Michael Andache's about cultural displacement and about finding ways to negotiate a bicultural life. For, who, for people who live between languages and sets of cultural practices, maybe hybrid, hybrid forms are especially useful. Hybrid writing is a powerful means of highlighting and framing the tensions of in-betweenness. Edmund Jabez, an Egyptian Jew who was forced to leave Egypt for France, wrote also an extraordinary series of Midrashic books, for example, The Book of Questions, in which he includes parable, dialogue, and poetry. More recently, Kazim Ali's Bright Felon, which he subtitles Autobiography and Cities, is partly a travel memoir, a lyric poem, a meditation on spirituality, and a coming out narrative. In the vertical interrogation of strangers, the author uses what is usually an extra literary form, the questionnaire. She used this to kind of animate the book, and she states that from 1992 to 1996, she traveled between India the land of her ancestry, the United Kingdom, the country of her birth, and the United States, the country of her residence. During that time, she asked women of the Indian diaspora to anonymously and quickly, she gave them only 30 minutes, answer a series of questions she had prepared. Her initial plan was to produce an anthology of the voices of, of Indian women, but then she found herself compulsively answering her own questions over and over in a notebook, and then on stickers that she put up in public places. The same question in the book might be repeated on multiple pages, but accompanied by entirely different responses. And this leads to a kind of poetic musical rhythm. The banality of the questionnaire is transformed 
Instead of providing information or straightforward responses to questions, each page is an indirection, a diffusion. Here's one example. What is the shape of your body? Punjab, late spring, sitting on the edge of my bed. I lean down to put my sandals on. Next to my sandals, a dark hollow skin and long, as long and thick as a man's leg, the skin of a king cobra. When I touch it, the yellow color explodes at the base of my spine, rises like shot up then out of me. Something that happened that morning, there is something in me. It must be met. This is very poetic, obviously, but at the same time, Kapil creates a sense of uneasiness because our desire as readers to know who is speaking is never answered. The author has put all the responses together. Is it Banu Kapil? Is it one of her respondents? The question of authorship itself becomes a point of stress as though no one owns narrative or language. In contrast to Cha's abrupt shifts and unconcealed collaging, Kapil uses the collage to efface difference. It's a different and very effective approach to questioning what it means to be silenced and how difficult it can be to find one's own voice amidst many different pressures. So in conclusion, I'm going to give you a quote from Virginia Woolf. In 1936, she wrote to her nephew, also a writer, named Julian Bell. I don't see why you should worry yourself to write a novel. It's such a long, gradual, cold-handed business. What I wish is that you'd invent some medium that's half poetry, half play, half novel. Three halves, I see. Well, you must correct my arithmetic. I think there ought to be a scrambling together of mediums now. What I especially like about Wolf's mathematically impossible equation of three halves is that we can see from her comments, on the one hand, questions of genre, genre boundaries become subject to challenge within modernism, and then that happened quite a while ago, and it's continuing. On the, under on the other hand, those three halves indicate that figuring out how to make these recombined literatures is unwieldy and not always logical. So it is for us to create new forms of logic. Speaking of early 20th century poetries, the critic Hugh Kenner celebrated the spare, often elliptical or collaged writing that arose as a kind of corrective to the excesses of Victorian poetry. What emerged after that era of florid and sentimental writing, Kenner proposed, was an aesthetic of glimpses. Perhaps this vision, this partial vision, this aesthetic of glimpses, can serve as a guide for us now. The incompleteness of our postmodern understandings offers permission and necessity as we call our resources. Let's be surprised by our own tensions and aspirations as they lead us into and through writing to what tangible and alive thing we are as we create. After all, as Jack Spicer tells us, words are what sticks to the real. We use them to push the real, to drag the real into our writing. They are what we hold on with, nothing else.